Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. Greetings, listeners. Well, as many of you know, we here at Karen University have hosted a podcast for some time formerly known as Karen 10. And with this episode, we welcome you to the newest iteration of the university podcast, Broadened. It's called Karen Commons. As the Karen 10 grew beyond the bounds of a 10-minute check-in with our alumni primarily, we decided to expand to what the show will look like today, a longer-form podcast where we speak with faculty, alumni, students, and friends of the university about issues that matter to our community. The Commons will be our gathering place for conversations around the matters, concerns, and opportunities that we find in our midst, all grounded in the biblical worldview we are committed to here at Cairn University. My name is Nate Wombold, your host, and I'm Vice President for Alumni and Community Affairs at Cairn. But you will also likely hear some other voices along the way as we explore a diverse set of subjects in various ways and from various perspectives. So with this inaugural episode, we are happy to welcome into the studio distinguished and longtime Karen professor, Dr. Gary Schnicker. Gary teaches Old Testament and Hebrew here at the university, and he recently released his newest book entitled Old Testament Use of Old Testament. Dr. Schnicker received his PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he has been teaching at the university since 1997. So with that, I welcome you to Karen Commons, and let's get started. All right, today in the studio, we have Karen's Dr. Gary Snicker, who is not only an alum, but has also been in the School of Divinity since 1997, where he now serves as Professor of Old Testament. He's authored a number of books and papers, and is here with me today to talk about his latest book, Old Testament Use of Old Testament. Today we will cover a variety of topics, clarify a good number of definitions, and I think you will have a new perspective, I don't think it's unfair to say, on the way in which the writers of the Old Testament use the Old Testament itself in some cases in ways that may even be a little bit surprising. Finally, we will address the question of whether or not changes in Torah represent changes in God, and we'll end with some parting thoughts from Gary on perspectives on reading the Old Testament. Gary, thanks for coming by. Nate, thank you for uh, having me. I know you've done this for a long time. I'm glad you got around to me. It's um, good to be here. Yes. Well, let's start with this, Gary. Why the Old Testament for you? I mean, the story goes back further than this, but I think probably the like this watershed moment. So my first teaching job was at Bryan College down in Dayton, Tennessee, and I was uh, teaching this course to um, undergraduates on Romans. And my first semester teaching, and I, I remember being in the library just saying and trying to figure out, how do I explain to my students what Paul is doing with the Old Testament in Romans? Like, what am I supposed to do? Because my class is coming up in a few hours. And I remember going out the stairs of uh, the library there at Bryan College. And I was in the middle of the stairs, and it's a, it's a beautiful spread there going out onto the campus. And um, it just hit me on top of my head and stopped me in my tracks. Paul was not studying or teaching or interpreting the Old Testament. He was interpreting the Bible. This is Paul's Bible. Paul didn't have a New Testament. Jesus didn't have a New Testament. None of the apostles have a New Testament. And I should have realized it before, but it just stopped me in my tracks before I made my way over to the Bible annex where my office was. And I just 
it was when I first began to realize, what does it mean to read what the New Testament authors are doing, not in light of the Old Testament, but think with them about their Bible? And so that's, um, I think, one of the things that really pushed me into, it's one of the moments where I began to know, I'm going to be Old Testament and that's hmm. it. Almost like a little mini epiphany there, right? <laughs> of a sort. Yeah. yeah. Well, you said it dropped on you, so it's, yeah. A- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it stopped me on my tracks. Yeah. No, that's great. So then uh, coming this book, and you've written on a variety of subjects related to the Old Testament and other things, but um, what, what is this particular book about and why did you select this particular subject of all the things you could have written about? Well, it's the New Testament use of the Old Testament, um, like anybody else, I, I might just scratch my head and say, this is really strange. But truth be told, what especially motivates me is it's only weird what the New Testament is doing with the Old Testament from a modern perspective. If we walk with Paul or with one of the apostles, one of the authors of the New Testament, and think about how they're studying their Bible, we say, we realize all of a sudden they're using their Bible, the way the authors of their Bible use the Bible. And so this idea of the New Testament authors interpreting Scripture the way that the authors of their Scriptures interpreted Scripture, that's something that hasn't gotten adequate attention. And so I've been um, very interested in tracking down and working out how the Old Testament authors, how they interpreted their Bible because the Bible is very important to them. Because when we think about what the New Testament authors were doing, it didn't start there. I mean, Paul or the author to the Hebrews are interpreting the Old Testament the way that the psalmists or the prophets interpret the Old Testament. Well, not the Old Testament, uh, the earlier scriptures, yeah. uh, to say it better. But I mean, it, you know, we could even ask, did the prophets or the psalmists invent this? Well, the answer there is no. Because they're interpreting Torah, and if we look at Torah, the way that Torah interprets Torah has a profound shape on what the prophets do. They're not inventing something out of a new cloth. They're interpreting Torah according to the natural contours and sort of the, the way that even Deuteronomy offers interpretations of the earlier books of Torah. Mm-hmm. So before we move on, can you do a quick refresher for someone listening? And they're hearing you use the word Bible, Old Testament, Torah. <laughs> and in my mind, I have rattling around the law, prophets, and writings. It's just go. kind of in there in a place. But can you do a quick clarification for us on kind of the nomenclature of this that, that might help if someone's... They need a quick refresher. Yeah, some people today use don't like the term Old Testament. They use some corny terms like the Elder Testament or the First Testament But I don't think there's any problem with the Old Testament, New Testament. That's a great way to say it. But since there was uh, no New Testament, the New Testament authors, they looked at the Old Testament. They they would just call it the Torah and the prophets. And so we hear that language in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And nobody carried a Bible back then. I mean, the scrolls are huge. And so they were also very expensive. So they were kept in synagogues. So the scrolls were arranged later in the synagogues according to Tanakh, what you said, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Torah, Prophets, and Writings. So the Torah, Prophets, and Writings is nothing else than the Old Testament. So I'll use the term Christian Bible to refer to the Protestant scriptures, Old and New Testament, and 
you know, we can refer to Israel's scriptures as Tanakh or mm-hmm. I'll just say Old Testament for here. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's helpful. It's a great uh, refresher. Well, let's get into some specifics then. And I guess it's fair to say, too, that we're touching on here some aspects um, out of your book, but that a person who reads it is going to be walking along with you and kind of answering the questions that you were after. Is that correct in terms of how the Old Testament writers actually use Old Testament? Yeah, the, the book is for students, and it's for ministers of the Word. It's not the kind of fun book that you might read on the beach. It's, um, it's, a, it's a book Come to... Come on, Gary. I can, <laughs> I can see some people reading it on the beach. All right, well, possible. I hang out with different people. You're right. <laughs> I didn't say I hang out with them. I said I could see some people. But I think it's, it. uh, this is gonna, it's a thick book. I mean, so it works through hundreds of cases uh, through yeah. each book of the Old Testament, and it's kind of helps guide ministers of the Word, or students especially, to learn how to understand what the Old Testament authors are doing with their scriptures. And ultimately, you know, there's a chapter near the end of the book that um, is toward the New Testament that kind of makes some of these connections to the larger revelation of God in the Christian Bible. That's great. All right, well, let's dive in here. So you, you've written in, in one place, sometimes Yahweh's will does not fit in a tweet. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, that's kind of just a, um, a little bit of a snarky way, I guess, of talking about the unrealistic expectations of um, modern people. M- modern people are used to kind of pulling out their cell phone and they think they're going to click on brain surgery and like basically understand it mm-hmm. in five minutes. And that sort of unrealistic expectation easily gets translated over into a church setting where we expect you know, ministers week in and week out to bring a sermon, but we, we wait for that pithy statement that could fit in a tweet. And I'm a teacher, so in my classes, surely, my, it doesn't matter how profound the subject matter is, my students are waiting for me to say this little nugget, you know, this little saying, this motto that they can write down, that they could put in a tweet. Mm. And so I think that we Christians in many of our settings, we kind of have these expectations for the scriptures that are just not realistic. Um, we, we are trying to fit the scriptures into our modern image, so to speak. But this idea of progressive revelation really is a much better way to explain what God's doing. I mean, he's not saying everything at once. He's revealing things in stages. And a modern might be a pain in the neck and say, well, why doesn't God just say it? Well, that's what I mean. Yahweh is not a modern American. So we can't come to the scriptures expecting the scriptures to conform to our pathetic sort of expectations we need to come to the scriptures and see how God has been pleased to unfold his revealed will. Hmm. And it's, it's a little bit different than a tweet. Tweeting, right. <laughs> well, we're going to get to a number of different terms today, but here's another one. I'm wondering, can you define and talk about exegetical advancements and why these are also challenging for the modern Christian? Yeah, there's a lot of buzzwords in the uh, area of the scriptural interpretation of scripture. And exegetical advancements is just one way to get at these instances of progressive revelation. Or to put it in different terms, the way the 
Bible uses the Bible. So when a biblical author doesn't just say something new, but quotes or alludes or paraphrases or uses or expands or enhances or develops or adjusts an older teaching, we call those um, either interpretive or exegetical advancements. And the idea behind advancement is, or advance, is that it's not this innovation and it's not something new, but it's moving revelation forward, that it, there's a real continuity between what God has said and how that unfolds in ways, even if they're surprising, that fit with what God has known all along. Mm. So that's um, maybe one way to get at it. And I think we talk about the exegetical advancements in the Old Testament use of Old Testament. There's both external triggers for these advances and internal triggers. Now, by an external trigger, I have in mind um, things like the devastating crisis that Judah went into in the exile. I mean, they're waking up in captivity, facing realities that they believed could never happen mm. and would never happen based on what God had said. I mean, think back to the Abrahamic covenant of giving the land and think back to God saying to um, David, your son will sit on this throne forever. And so to wake up in captivity and say, how, how can this reality correspond to what God has said? That's where the prophets provide the gift of an advancement of revelation, that it's um, the prophets don't say, oh, I don't know what to say. They say, we've warned you again and again for a long time to turn away from your sin. This isn't a surprise. It's only a surprise because you've misunderstood what's going on. So that, that would be an external trigger. An internal trigger is as scriptural revelation accumulates, sometimes uh, later biblical authors, uh, we see this all the time in the New Testament, but in later Old Testament authors, they'll read one text in the light of another because God's revelation is, there's a synergy, right? It's meant to be read together. It's not two separate things. And so when Torah gets read together with prophet, uh, or what the psalmists do, reading two Torah passages or two prophetic passages together, sometimes the sum is greater than the, the two just added together. And in that we have an advancement. It's an advancement right. of a revelation. Mm -hmm. That's correct. So reading uh, some of the things that you've written struck a question in my mind that I've been you know, from time to time pondering. So I'll give you kind of a statement here, and I'd like you to, to react to that. Um, would you say it's a fair statement that some of the Old Testament, the language almost seems in some sense a little primitive and, you know, certain elements of that as well? And was this, in a way, actually really done because of the time in which it was written to the people to whom it was written? And so I know I'm throwing a lot of questions at you here, but what are the implications of this for modern day believers, if this is a, is a fair question? And I wonder if maybe, you know, if, if we're headed down the right path here, even in asking this question, perhaps there are some biblical examples that maybe you could bring up to illustrate how, you know, there, there, there is some, some truth to this. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not going to get all 
up in your face as an Old Testament professor right now. And yes, I, yeah. I won't do that. Okay. I, I'll concede the point. You that could, you can. If you want. <laughs> I mean, we are separated by some sure. distance here, but but I I think you're right. I mean, on any reading, there's some things that are a little bit odd, and you know that that are tough for New Testament. New Testament believers, I guess I can say, for believers in general to mm-hmm. read when we see the Old Testament. But especially the more modern believer. Yeah, right? the modern believer um, can come to these things and think, you know, what does this have to do with me? And I think that it's, it's important for us to remember that when God revealed himself in his son, Jesus, the Messiah, I mean, that's contextualization all the way. God doesn't just make everyone come all the way to him. He condescends to bring about his revelation of the gospel in a way that can be seen and touched and is, you know, Christ is tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. So I think that this idea of all revelation being contextualized is um, probably something we should expect, even though you're right, we kind of are troubled that the Bible doesn't kind of scratch our itch. But I think um, Israel's an set in an ancient culture. It's ancient. And so, of course, if they woke up tomorrow in our culture, they would find some things like very strange. I mean, we have some very unusual things in our culture. Probably even primitive. (laughs) Well, they might think it's primitive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All sorts of things. But let's take a worst case scenario as an example. I think your point's good, instead of just talking around it. I know one of the um, teachings in the Old Testament that is often um, ridiculed by Christians is the law to not plant two kinds of seeds together or to wear clothing made out of two kinds of fabric. And Leviticus 19 says it this way, do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven together of two kinds of material. And so that sort of um, teaching is just off-putting in general. Like it doesn't seem to have make any sense. And many Christians just are relieved. They say, huh. Glad we don't have to deal with any of that monkey business. But it's interesting that there must have been some questions about this because Moses comes back around to this in Deuteronomy chapter 22. And there's a exegetical advancement here. There's a Mm -hmm. move forward. And he says, do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. And then here's the plus. Otherwise, the produce will be holy. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. And so there's that connection, too. So the thought here is that because the tabernacle curtains were made of multiple fabrics woven together, and because the priest's garments had to be like the tabernacle curtains of different fabrics woven together, then it's almost like this became an object lesson for Israel, that it was off limits to weave together different fabrics was holy. So if Israel ever wove together two fabrics, this would make it holy and put it in other terms, then it's confiscated by the temple uh, staff because if it's holy, it belongs to the Lord. So Israel had to keep their fabrics unwoven together. They couldn't plant their seeds together as a way to preserve this mixed fabric, if you will, for God. And so we can look at all this and think it's trite, but you know, think about how that, that it encodes the world of ancient Israel with symbolism. 
that there's theology written to, even in the way they dress, even in the way they plant their um, fields. And, you know, we think about what Paul and Sosthenes say in Corinthians, you know, do all to the glory of God. Well, here's where we probably shouldn't just read a verse in the Old Testament and shake our heads, but here's something for us. Do we live our lives, you know, in this theologically rich way of honoring God and even the clothes we put on our bags. Mm. Yeah, that puts it in, in a whole new light. And it actually makes me, if I can come back to that same question and kind of take it from another angle, you know, one of the kind of criticisms in, almost in, a, in an apologetic sense that a lot of people have, even outside the faith, is look at the Old Testament and, you know, Critics might almost say, you know, well, clearly the Bible is full of inaccuracies because of the language that, that is used and, and some of these things. It's almost as if God was, was uh, this revelation is before the modern age and therefore it clearly dates these scriptures in a time that is simply primitive and therefore Christianity is, is debunked. But it's given to a specific people in a specific time. And if the language of that were to appear sort of, I guess it might be almost anachronistic in a way, right? right? As yeah. if it were relevant to today, it would have been, you know, very, very difficult uh, for the scriptures to do what the scriptures are to do. So I, I think that's kind of the other aspect of that, no, I think. I, is I that, think that that's a good pushback yeah. because it is fair. But I think that when we get modern pushback against the scriptures and sort of this sort of condemnation, even by Christians against right. these irrelevant Old Testament laws. I think that we're, we're really blind to our own selves. Because this morning, I can tell you, when I got up, the sunrise was beautiful. Now, I say that, but I don't believe that. You don't believe that. No one believes that the sun rose this morning. I mean, no one believes that. But I'm never going to say to you, well, this morning when I woke up, as the earth right. turned on its axis yeah. towards the stellar gases that we call a star, and the um, light rays came through the atmospheric gases on an angle, and the membranes on my face picked up these and um, brought them to my brain. It released chemicals and gave me a sensation that was really good. I mean, we don't talk like that. I mean, that's what we think really happened this morning. But I just say, the sunrise was so beautiful this morning, and it it just moved me. I mean, so we use anachronistic, poetic language all the time. It's not a lie that the sun was be- the sunrise was beautiful this morning. It's true. Right. Right. But it's it's in a very traditional encoded way. It's not what we believe, but we never say what we mean. Right. I mean, we never say what we mean. Mm-hmm. We only speak in this sort of poetic sort of manner. And I think that it's important when we come to the Old Testament in general is to not to check some of our, I guess, prejudice baggage at the doors and walk in the shoes of these delegates that God has assigned to reveal his will mm-hmm. um, through the pages of Scripture. Well, great. I'm wondering if you can uh, explain a little bit further as we continue with this, the progressive revelation idea. Yeah, thanks. This is something that a lot of times the old theologians would use a metaphor and probably the most common metaphor on both sides of the theological aisle, is that progressive revelation is like a tree. 
And so there's always talk about how, you know, this tree grows up in ring after ring after ring, and it takes a hundred years to grow a tree. And it develops its character and it sprouts over time. But it's, you can't plant an oak in one year. I mean, it, it's, it's this long time thing. And so that, that becomes this sort of um, very easy metaphor that many theologians have used to try and explain what progressive revelation is. Now, when we use the term progressive revelation, that's sort of a shorthand for the progressive revelation of God's redemptive will. In other words, it, we're talking about the, the meta-narrative of the gospel. And that doesn't start in Bethlehem in a manger. It starts in the very beginning when God says, let there be light. And there was light. I mean, the redemptive work of God is a, it's a big story that encompasses it all. So progressive revelation is really this big term for the meta-narrative or message of the scripture that unfolds incrementally and ultimately culminates in the gospel of the Messiah. So we've talked a lot here about advancements, progressive revelation, and other things. And I wonder, is the concept of exegetical advancements or even progressive revelation would you say in conflict with the traditional view on the unchanging nature of God and his aseity? That's an excellent question. And I think, you know, right away we can kind of get our backs up and say with Isaiah, the word of God stands forever. And so how could there possibly be an adjustment to what God has said? And um, I think we need to be very careful here not to confuse who God is with how he has chosen to reveal himself to his people. The revealed truth does not change, but God reveals more over time. And to think that we can treat revelation as though it were fossils on display in a museum is a, is a deep misunderstanding on our part because earlier revelation is living and active precisely because of the revelation that comes after that reaches back and expands upon it and advances it. This whole idea didn't start with these renegade prophets, these rogue delegates. These things started with Yahweh himself. We go back to, say, Numbers chapter 9, the very first Passover celebrated in the wilderness. And there was some folk who were a little upset because they were ritually impure, and so they were disqualified from participating in Passover. And so they come and complain to Moses. You know, and there's all sorts of reasons why they might have been ritually impure, like burying the dead. And so Moses brings this complaint to Yahweh. And Yahweh doesn't turn about and say, I have spoken, do what I said. He says, that's a good point. And so he makes an adjustment. The Lord tells Moses that those who are ritually impure or traveling, can celebrate Passover on the 14th of the second month. And so he provides a sort of an alternate worship scenario to accommodate these complaints from these folk. Another example also from Numbers is um, the daughters of Zelophehad, when he passed away, he died with no sons. And so the daughters of Zelophehad called a meeting and there they are with all the elders, the men of their tribe and Moses. And they complain. They say, why should our father's name be blotted out of Israel? Because he doesn't have any sons. And so uh, Moses takes this 
to to the Lord, and we can read here in Numbers 27, the Lord says, what they say is good. Females do inherit. If there's no males, the females inherit just like any male. And so the Lord makes this um, audible, so to speak, and adjusts things. And sure enough, um, predictably, that's not the end of it. In Numbers 36, we read that the the elders of the tribe of Manasseh, Zelophehad's tribe, they came to Moses now and they complain. They say, wait a minute, this isn't right. If we give these women land, they might marry somebody from another tribe and our inheritance that the Lord has promised to Manasseh will be diminished and given to these other tribes. And the Lord said, what they say is good. (laughs) And so then the Lord makes another adjustment to the adjustment that he's already made. And in this case, he says, now the women do inherit, but part of that inheritance to keep the name of the dead alive means that they have to marry within their tribe because the the Lord's going to honor both his new word to Zelophehad's daughters, but he's honoring the word that he's already given, that this land is for this tribe forever. So it's the Lord himself who sets the precedent for the advancement of revelation, of these expansions and adjustments and moving things forward. And part of what we need to remember is that, you know, the attitude that the law says, just comply, don't ask any questions. And that has nothing to do with biblical law. That's, that's an error that we bring to it. Biblical law is always in service of redemption. Never, not the other way around. And so, you know, we, we need to recognize at some level the reality of things. There is no such thing as a book of Torah that has laws with no adjustments. Take Exodus. We have the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Chapters 21, 22, 23, we have the um, covenant collection. And then already when the people rebel with the golden calf, the way that God affirms his forgiveness and his grace and mercy is to offer them the covenant renewal collection in Exodus 34, 11 to 26, which is nothing more than enhancements and expansions and developments and advances of the laws he had already given. So he affirms his law by advancing it even there as a sign of his grace and mercy to Israel. Hmm. And of course, anyone who reads Leviticus recognizes that the institution of the tabernacle creates a whole raft of new laws because now all of a sudden all of life is interpreted as, you know, coming before the Lord in worship. And uh, Deuteronomy is uh, more of the same. That is, there is no sort of book of Torah that's just the law without any advances. This is the way it's always been. And God's the one who himself set the precedent for advances of revelation. And a lot of what you write really gets into many of the, if it's fair to say, sort of literary aspects of what we're reading. So I want to talk about a couple of those things. Mm. For instance, you write that Amos weaponized Torah, which is a very catchy way of, <laughs> it conjures up a variety of images. What, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, weaponized Torah is, um, that's one way to say it, but when Amos goes to his constituency in the northern kingdom, of course, Amos is from the south, he does not 
He nowhere explains the meaning of Torah. He nowhere explains the laws and their nuances. He alludes to them very casually. He expects that his congregation in the north, they know the law. That's not the problem. So he winds up taunting them and mocking them. He uses the law to make fun of these phony hypocrites who are greedy, selfish, and immoral, and then go to temple like nothing happened. And so he'll say something, well, I guess the law background has to make sense first. Deuteronomy says, you know, once you get into the land and it spreads out, you only have to go to give your tithes once every three years, Deuteronomy 14. Amos mocks his congregation by saying, you give tithes every three days. Of course, it doesn't make sense in an agricultural setting. It's an annual thing. And so he's, he's just making fun. But he's not the only one. Later prophets took cues from these early prophets, and they often used Torah to ridicule their stubborn constituency. For example, Jeremiah takes a favorite verse from Deuteronomy 26 and um, uh, just uh, pours it to his congregation. Deuteronomy 26 says, He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above the nations. You will be a people holy to Yahweh your God. That's such a cherished thing, but especially those terms there, praise, fame, and honor. Well, Jeremiah is going to use those as a punchline in his sermon against these rebels. Jeremiah says in chapter 13, For as a loincloth is bound around the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me, declares Yahweh, to be a people for my fame, praise, and honor. So this wonderful image of God's mercy from Deuteronomy 26 Jeremiah makes that a punchline in his taunt against these rebels of Judah, saying, you're the, in quotes here, air quotes, you're the praise, honor, and fame. That is, you're a dirty loincloth of mine. Because of the way they acted, the Lord compares his people to a dirty loincloth as praise, honor, and fame. So I, I think that's the sort of thing that I mean when I say, the prophets weaponized Torah. They used Torah n- not to hurt their constituents. What they're really trying to do is God's people can be very stubborn in their sin. They're trying to get in the people's face and stop them before it's too late. And one of the ways they use is to weaponize Torah. Hmm. So the subject of parody comes up as well as you're looking at this. And I wonder, can you explain a little bit more about that? You actually mentioned Ezekiel using parody. And I think of parody maybe something that the modern person associates more with Saturday Night Live or some other kind of um, uh, comedy sketch, but not normally with the Old Testament. Uh, you're right. Our nighttime TV is very good at uh, making fun of things and parodies one way. Ezekiel's a master at parody. And so uh, he, he, he uses it quite a bit. And some is uh, not rated G, so I'll keep away from that. But one example would be um, the, the teaching, which is a little distasteful in Leviticus 26 and similar in Deuteronomy uh, 28. Leviticus says, You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters, 
This idea of cannibalizing one's own children is, of course, turning everything upside down because children are a gift from God. And so to imagine these, as Deuteronomy says, these dainty mothers fighting over, you know, eating their children is distasteful vision. But it gets at the siege warfare, the starvation that the people would be brought to eventually because when they rebel, God will bring the enemies of Israel against them. And that's his way of giving them a message. They'll be brought to cannibalism over their rejection of God's will. And Ezekiel kind of takes that teaching and he puts it together with one of his favorites, one he alludes to a couple of times. Uh, It's from Deuteronomy 24, and it's on equality of sorts, equality in judgment in the uh, courtroom. Uh, Deuteronomy 24 says, Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. And so that's a nice sentiment on equality, and it's one that Ezekiel makes good use of in a couple of places. But what Ezekiel does is he blends both of these contexts together from Leviticus 26, his favorite chapter, and Deuteronomy 24, one of his favorite verses. He blends these two together, and it makes a parody, is the best way to put it. Ezekiel says in chapter 5, Therefore, in your midst, parents will eat their children, and children will eat their parents. Now, talking about equality and cannibalism, I mean, it's an upsetting image. But Ezekiel's kind of showing through this parody the perversity that Israel has introduced into their own customs and rebellion, often in the name of the covenant. Um, so, you know, that, that's one of the things that's sobering when we read the Bible. The, the prophets are not preaching to the bad people, the pimps and the prostitutes and whatnot. They're preaching to the congregation that will listen. These hard words are for those that think they have a relationship with God. And this should sober us as we study the scriptures and recognize that Oftentimes, the people that have a smug smile on their face are the ones that are on the wrong end of a prophetic word. So one of the things I think this illustrates is in order to get a joke to sort of be on the receiving end of an attack or a barb or some sort of scathing word, if the person is referring to something literary, you have to know the literary thing in the first place. So you've you've talked about this, and if you're correct, and I certainly agree with you that Uh, where the assumption in the Old Testament was that the listeners knew the Bible. So when these attacks, these parodies, these weaponizations were used, they were effective because people knew where they were coming from, and they were able to pick up on the reversal of that and then hopefully hear the the correction that was necessary. Today, many people in the church pews are not familiar with the scriptures, such that if somebody were to even... Uh, perform a, a, a play like this, a reversal, they may not even realize it or get it. So I think there's probably even broader implications than just in this one scenario. But but what generally do you think are the implications of this for the modern pastor and Christians? I mean, that's a much bigger thing than we can unfold right here. We can touch at that. And I think it's a really good question is that how do we even begin? You know, people throw around the word biblical illiteracy a lot. And There's wide agreement among almost everybody that today's Christians 
They might have the Bible more available than any generation ever, but they've not taken advantage of that. And so your question is a good one. What about so many Christians that can't get the joke and don't even know where to start with reading the Old Testament? And so, you know, what, what do we do about this? Well, I think, um, again, without, there's, there's 10 answers, but I'll give yeah. one that relates to this area of in, interpretation in the Bible, Bible interpretation in the Bible. That this is one part that can play a small role in addressing some of this. You know, we think about our own Bibles, and many of us might have a Bible with a page in it with um, scripture references in it on the left-hand side and the right-hand side. And, you know, many, many Christians find that very comforting because, I mean, especially if they don't look the references up, that page in their Bible shows them that what God has said comes fulfilled in the gospel of Messiah. But what's troubling is if anybody ever did look those up, what do they do? Because, again, part of the thing that's going on here is we're so out of touch that we, when we see the Bible authors interpreting the Bible, it just seems weird to us. I think, though, that maybe even that page out of our Bible with the things on the left and the right is part of our false expectations. We want to make all these jumps immediately. Boom. We want to take the big jump from the beginning to end. I mean, how often do we summarize the Bible in Genesis 1, 2, 3, bang, let's stage left to Jesus of Nazareth in the manger, and let's go to Romans, and here we are. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we need to remember that God revealed his will over the course of more than a thousand years in the Old Testament. And so there's a, a lot of water under the bridge between Genesis and the garden and the manger of our Lord. If we want to take a step in the right direction, we, it, we might even just start by saying, what about the messy problems of Israel? Because the Old Testament, it's not just that there's different genres, prophecy, Torah, stories, wisdom. It also covers time. And so can we walk with Israel from being slaves to wanderers to invaders to people that need rescue? to subjects of a king of promise, to captives, to people that return who now live marginalized lives in a province of the empire. I mean, that's over a thousand year period. And each stage of the storyline of the Old Testament, Israel is, their lives are messy. And so God is not only patient, he sends his delegates to teach them his will usually the thing he said before, but in a new, advanced way. Um, and so I think we need to walk with Israel sometime and uh, walk the path toward the cross and see how revelation unfolds toward the culmination of the gospel in Christ. So that's not something that's just going to happen by clicking something in our phone. I mean, what I'm talking about is a different attitude about the scriptures altogether. The kind of attitude we might take, say, when we fall in love and want to get to know someone, or things that we really love to do or we devote our time to, that's the kind of attention that the Old Testament requires. When we come to it with expectations that I'm going to click something and bang, 
I mean, that's, that's uh, not going to work out. So anyway, one part of the solution, certainly not all of it, is taking note of the book that the authors of the Bible loved. They studied the scriptures. They quoted the scriptures. They reinterpreted the scriptures. The scriptures are at the heart of the scriptural author's uh, message. It's not a surprise to us that they talk about the new creation, the new Moses, the new Exodus, the new David, the new covenant. Those are not New Testament things, even though they sound like New Testament things. Those are Old Testament things. Those are old, Old Testament things pointing to new expectations. So that's the sort of thing where the Old Testament is used in the Old Testament as it steps us toward the gospel of Christ. Well, maybe in conclusion, can you, along those same lines, maybe extending that a little bit, just provide some kind of a basic, broad suggestion for how, how should Christians uh, read the Old Testament? I mean, you've kind of highlighted a few of these things here, but, but do you have anything maybe to add to that? Yeah, I, th- I think that this idea of patience or appetite, you know, Christ talks in the Sermon on the Mount of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. I mean, we have people today hungering and thirsting for many things. Sometimes it's just lunch. But other times it's the things we dream of and it's the things we pursue. And I'm not trying to say that the Bible's too hard. I mean, it's right there for everyone. But I think we all know the sense of when we read the Bible with the Bible, sometimes it opens up a new surprise for us that we unexpected. We say, I've read this my whole life and I never saw this before. And to have the sort of attitude that, as the psalmist says, like a deer that pants for the brooks of water. I mean, if we, we need the right kind of attitude when we come to the scriptures to want something that is slow, that is like progressive revelation, that's, it's not a microwave. It's not, you know, super fast internet. It's, it takes a different kind of devotion than that. And so I think that many moderns are just ill-equipped for um, the Bible because our expectations are such when we want to click something, hover over something, and we, we want it to be nothing more than that. But I think the Bible has much for us, but it's, a, it's an invitation. So are we going to rise to the invitation? So I don't know that that's a technique or a method mm. But it's almost a kind of shaping of expectations in a way, too, isn't it? That it is not going to be quick access, but kind of setting yourself up for the long haul. Yes, and we have to trust God and trust his servants who revealed his will that, that it's worth it and that he does have something for us. And I think that the unfortunate impatience of many moderns is to their own ruin. And that even includes Christians that don't have the time, quote-unquote, for the Bible. 
That's a great challenge and clarification, too. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for joining us. And I hope that those listening, both former students, perhaps, of Dr. Snicker and others who have benefited from knowing him as teaching and writing, I hope that you will check out his book, Old Testament Use of Old Testament. And you could even read it on a beach. I think that would be (laughs) ideal based on our conversation. And and I would love if you sent a photo to alumni at cairn.edu of your beach reading. Um, I'll make sure Gary gets this. Um, I, I'm also really confident that um, based on this conversation and, and, and my perusal of some of Gary's things that you'll find it a big help, uh, a challenge, but also a big help in your reading of the Old Testament and maybe even critically rekindling a passion for that reading as you've heard talked about here today. Um, I'm glad we have men like you, uh, teachers like you, Gary at Cairn, who are here to help uh, not only students, but also projecting some of these things out in this podcast time, things that are so really critical for the Christians and for their faith. So thanks again for joining us, and thanks again to those of you who have listened in. Thank you, Nate. It's been a pleasure to be here. 